Hello, hello everyone and welcome to the most head-switching game dev podcast in the world, House of Games. I'm your co-host Rune and today I'm joined by my host Oto and two very special boys, Daniel and Dave. Before we get around the table to introduce everyone, let's just hijack a car and plow through the doors of this week's episode of this House of Games. Alright, welcome everyone to House of Games. It's really good to have you back here, Daniel, and most welcome to you, Dave, for the first time. Starting off, would you like to introduce yourselves for those who don't know who you are? You go first, Dave. Okay, I'm the community relations specialist guy for Strictly Limited Games, who operates out of Germany, selling boxed editions of previously digital-only games. So, yeah, that's me. Cool. I'm Daniel, and I'm the CEO of a small indie company here in Umeå. I mostly program, but also am involved a lot with the visual side of our products. So that's pretty close to marketing as well. So that's me in a few, few sentences. Yes, speaking of marketing, what is your company called, just so nobody misses it? The Fine Arc. Great. It's nice to have such a, a big cast for this episode. So today we're going to talk about something new, something a little bit related to marketing, I suppose, which is publishers and how to deal with them and if you need them, what they can do for you and so on. So starting off, I have not had any experience with publishers, but I know at least you, Rune, have some relationship with your current publisher, at least. So do you want to start with why you have a publisher and what they do for you and the day-to-day conversation or relationship with them? Well, the day-to-day conversation is very limited. He's very busy and they Shinyu then they also do translations for games from Japanese to English and Spanish so he's basically a Spanish guy living in Japan and I I met him through Taipei game show so I took my first game Knife Boy to Taipei and then he approached me and then well Knife Boy the, the first game he sort of went to development hell for a while but then he published Red Colony 1, 2 and 3 and now Knife Boy used a couple of months ago. Uh, what was the other question you said? I guess, so we set a baseline for this episode is what does a publisher do for you? Why do you need a publisher? Yeah, I can start by saying like, I think all publishers do different things. It depends on how big or slash small they are. In terms of Shinyu, it's a very small publisher, but you know, obviously they use their contacts to to get my games out there like red colony was featured in famitsu a really old classic japanese gaming magazine it's only like one picture of the game and a a quick review i think it scored a seven which is pretty sweet for (laughs) based on what kind of game it is but that to me obviously is awesome to have my game in famitsu i mean i remember growing up hearing about that magazine you know before you even i mean before internet and all that so you would sort of have from Nintendo Power, the Swedish one, they would sort of quote things from Famitsu and it was just sort of half-assed translated and they guess, a lot of guesswork, I suppose. So they're like, ah, oh, there seems to be a new game coming out of Japan soon, Final Fantasy or whatever. So I think it's awesome that one of my games have been in that magazine, even though it's only one image of the game and, you know, but you know, that doesn't matter as long as it's in there. That's all that matters. And then uh, my publisher also hooked me up with uh, Soft East, East Asia. So they are also, which is interesting, they are also like strictly limited games. They do physical releases. So Red Colon is supposed to come out as a physical game, but I think they need to sell all, what is it, like 2,000 copies or something like that before they even start printing the games. So it's delayed until... March I believe so they needed a little bit more time to get the orders as far as I can tell and this sort of answers the question how often I'm in touch with my publisher and how the communication is and that's very limited 
But on the other hand, our relationship as human beings is very nice. He's a very nice guy. And uh, every time I go to Tokyo, I'm moving there next week. I, uh, you know, I hang out with them and it's very nice. So that's my little take on having a publisher. And yeah, I do think it's important. I think I mentioned it before in this episode that before, I don't think you needed a publisher when digital games were new because it was so few. But now it's becoming so overwhelmingly a lot of games, right? So you sort of need a publisher and his contacts or their budget to marketing your games and stuff like that. So I think it is becoming very important again. But I do think it was sort of, it's kind of going in cycles. I, I, I think about Pixel Junk, Eden, and some of the pr- early PlayStation 3 downloadable titles. I don't think they needed publishers back then because there was like five games on the store and every game sold tens of thousands of copies. But now, yeah, you know, all the stores are, are uh, overpopulated with games. So now I think it's important to have a publisher again. That's my take. Yeah, so I guess, uh, and anyone is welcome to jump in on this question, but then for everyone who is unfamiliar with the publishers, so the work that publishers do are not for free, I suppose. So what in return is, what what do you give up to have a publisher versus not having one? I'm not probably the right person to just answer that particular question, but... I do have some knowledge that a publisher always wants to recoup their investment. That's basically the the one thing that they're in for. They they want to make money, basically. I guess that recoup depends on their involvement and where you stand in your project. Like, when do you approach a publisher and how far you have come with your game project? Do you need production funding or do you only need marketing? It'll, <laughs> little support or do you need it? very much support. So I guess it depends from case to case how much publisher want to recoup. And there's also different sizes regarding publishers. Some don't even consider smaller projects because their marketing efforts has a baseline of like, it's always cost this much just to get them going. And that weeds out some of the smaller projects that they might be a approached to so they need a bigger budget just to have their wheels turning more or less so that's my experience with how much they want to recoup or the the percentage they are after i think it's very much from case to case sometimes they even want your ip and i think that's uh, like they want to own it sort of that's uh, a bit uh, i would say that's too much but yeah i, I think most of the time they just want to get their investment back i can say one more story about my publisher shinyu then they whatever profits basically they made from red colony one it was all pretty much all used to hire voice actors for red colony two so that's you know that's a gambler on their behalf but yeah that, that was pretty cool to have that game and voice acted by pro- professional voice actors here in, in japan but yeah they also do that sometimes like uh, they gamble a little bit to see if in this case a sequel if it will be better sell better or whatever with voice actors yeah like uh, streamline the process to make the next game more profitable and the third game more profitable i think that's a, a sensible thing for a publisher to do if they pour so much effort into a single project and just leave it and cut the uh, cut the ropes after that that wouldn't make much sense. So I can definitely understand that it's a smart move, so to speak. Well, Strictly Limited, that's sort of like a publisher, no? We have a few games of our own, but that's mostly projects that were finished or almost finished from back in the day that never get got published. And then we, you know, finished them up and published them. But that's just a few of the games published this way. When it comes to to the networking things and and indie games from some decades ago, not having the same competition, I mean, yeah, a publisher could help with the networking and um, contacts with content creators and PR agencies and and such things, uh, definitely. So it's probably... As you say, it's probably harder nowadays to to reach out as a 
as a singular dev, creating hype, creating anticipation, and building a community, and just, you know, have that be enough for a game to succeed. But what can we as a publisher offer when we take a game on, when we license a game and want to publish it, we want it to, to sell well. I mean, I always start from the point of what would make me interested in something, what would make me want to buy something. I mean, if, if you're scrolling through a social media feed or checking topics on a dedicated forum or whatever, what makes you stop and, and looking into something? Or, or start researching something. If you can find out what well, that is, that's a good start when it comes to start creating content. I mean, what makes me interact, what makes me comment. And obviously it's not necessarily the same thing when it comes to, to my own interest in prios, but that's, that's a good start. And um, if it's something that you're not particularly interested in, there's a lot of research going into it. To, to make, to present the game in the best way that we ever can. So speaking of that, I'm curious, how then would you get a publisher? So I'm guessing that it demands a lot of work, but what, what, does a, what is the process like and what does the publisher want to see to accept a game, to take the game under its wings, so to speak, to publish it and do marketing for it or give it a budget for production or whatever it may be? Well, well, for us, it's about catering to, to our community that we already have, the people that are interested in buying games from, from us. If we had a larger audience, it would be easier to take on niche games that might not be to most of our community's interests, so to speak. But there are certain genres that are harder to promote even though we love the games and even though we find the games awesome. So, so it's, I don't know, depends on, depends on the reach you have and, and the, the audience that you already have as a publisher, of course. When you think of a certain publisher, they have certain games under their belt, right? And they have a certain branding to their name. I mean, at least speaking for myself, I tend to be interested in, in games from certain publishers, just because I know that, well, this publisher usually have a game that I'm interested in, especially when it comes to, to uh, yeah. more niche founders or whatever. So you spoke about East Asia Soft, right? Yes. And they do limited prints for, I, I believe that they sold them through PlayAsia previously, right? Uh, yeah. You knew what to expect from East Asia Soft as a publisher. And you also had a special kind of consumer who bought things from PlayAsia. And PlayAsia is this huge Eastern distributor of games. And they sell a lot of Eastern exclusive games to people all over the world. So if you're interested in imports and so, you go there. I noticed that when I used read about my own game when they sort of tweeted and stuff like that it seems like like you said it's about the community because i could see sort of comments like oh my wallet is already bleeding now i need to buy this one as well so it's almost like the 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 fans of east soft asia east asia soft it's almost like they already know yeah they want the full set you know are supportive of the publisher or, or this way of experience new games not every part of the market works like this, but when it comes to limited print companies, this is very much how how it works. And people getting together over, you know, when it comes to 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 a common interest and sharing yeah. and, and and caring about uh, these releases that this publisher that are their favorite or 
Yeah, I also imagine it's, I mean, collector items. This, it sort of reminds me how I obsess over Lego kits. I, I check lego.com every day to see what's up next. And then I, I bought some kits that I haven't built yet, but I just, I want them. I need them in my collection. And I, and I see some of the kits I bought like a couple of years ago, they have almost doubled in price because these are limited things. You can sort of see Lego, they will sort of put certain kits out of um, production after a year or so. And then those prices just skyrocket. Before we move to Japan again, I opened a kit that had almost doubled in price and man, did that feel <laughs> horrible to open it. But you know, I really wanted to build that one. But I sort of feel slash see that in this physical game releases that it sort of looks like the fans of these publishers, they they want to collect these games. and the, But they also want, like you said, it seems like they also want to support the these companies like yours or East Asia Soft. Like they want to see these companies exist because we all know that physical games are getting less and less and less. And as an indie developer, it is... I mean, knock on wood, and I don't know if Red Column would actually come out. I hope. It seems like it based on if it get the, the pre-orders and all that. But as an indie developer, that's obviously a dream come true to, to have a physical game out there. Something you can, you know. Definitely. And I also think that as, as an indie developer, what, what you should see this as, besides having your creation in your hands in, in a physical forever format, is that it's it's a great way to get out there and getting people to know about the game because there will be press releases going out there will be marketing beats there will be a whole group of people interested in these kind of games that will get to know about your game so yeah. obviously this is just part of the market you you still have the steam community and whatever and how wish listing and, and stuff works i'm not that familiar with that part but what you do get is exposure in some way from these physical print companies. Yeah. So I'm a bit curious about the actual process of how to get a publisher. So as I understood it, pitching your game is the way to go. So do you have any experiences with either receiving a pitch or giving a pitch to a publisher for a game? Our company has been pitching and have helped out creating the materials for a pitch and the process of reaching out to publishers beforehand, before doing the actual pitch. And I think it's very important to find a good publisher, like a publisher fit that is in, in line with your what you're trying to make and that they have released similar games to your game before even doing the pitch. You know that, okay, these guys... They are in my market and they know how this target audience thinks. So a good relation with this publisher would be ideal for my game. I think that's a part that many developers don't make an effort. They just talk to every publisher that's on hand and try to push the product. And I think that's a bad strategy. Just Maybe not a bad strategy, but it's a waste of energy and time both for the publisher and for you, your time. If you can narrow it down and you know your target audience and you know what kind of uh, games a publisher releases, it's not much work. It's just a little bit of pre-processing before you can ask for the meeting. Other things to consider is like basic stuff, really. Know what you're making and be very clear about what is your unique selling point and have a, a clear out burn rate. What, what does your project cost? And I think that is good advice for any type of uh, industry to know what, what does my product cost to, to develop or create. That's a basic need a publisher needs to know. If you don't have that, I don't think you... I wouldn't say you don't have a chance, but I think you are ahead of the 90% of developers that they get approached by that don't have that milestone roadmap for the project and post-releases and updates or like a timeline of what you are planning to do is a good thing. So how would you calculate the cost and timeline for your project for someone who has never done this before? Write down your your basic needs and your costs and what you 
what you aim to have take out a salary and how many people that are involved with the project and what kind of licenses do you need to acquire and what kind of services do you need to pay for the equipment involved etc things of that all the costs that this uh, will entail that's interesting if you are asking for a production budget i think it's it's pretty easy to know what you need to what what the job entails but it's still a not a very fun job to do <laughs> so that's i think that's why so many don't 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 give that extra effort and i'm thinking like estimating the time it takes to make a game also can be quite difficult to get it right i mean just looking at my own game that has zero stakes even that is hard to estimate how long it's gonna take and when it's gonna be done or what features are gonna be involved so i can imagine that that takes a lot of time just to get that figure right as well yeah i think it's important to scope your product and don't let new and shiny (laughs) revelations get into your product if you haven't planned for them that's a time burner if you can present some sort of cadence if you have a, a, a demo out already and you can present how how you reached this stage i think that's a good point of reference of how your project is faring if you are very good at delivering on your milestones and you're consistent with your throughput that will be recognized by your publisher and give some confidence to your project as well having a plan even when you don't have a publisher like track your time and see if you can meet your goals without a publisher then you can point to that and say that i have kept to my milestones and i have kept these deadlines that i've set up for myself that's a good thing to to show the discipline would it also be good i mean in my case i have released games that's uh that's a pretty nice merit too or I don't. I'm not sure if I'm good with deadlines. I, I feel like I am, but I. Yeah, it's always good to show that you are the the right team to make this product and present yourself with the best foot forward. <laughs> Point to all your experiences and past projects that aligns with this this product. That's a good thing. In my case, I'm I'm thinking about pitching my next game before we move back to Sweden because. In Sweden, I can't. I need to have like a, I don't know, a, a part-time job or a proper job on the side. But I would really like to just spend time making my game. So I'm actually gonna look into pitching it to some publisher. But yeah, that that whole thing with deadlines and stuff like that, and also where is the money going? Because in my case, it would just be my salary basically. I want you to be my publisher so i can work on this full time so i don't have to waste time working somewhere else i think that's a fair point that it's just going to salary but i think that's the constant cost of the project but what does your salary give the publisher can they measure like the pre-production and the concepts and the sound engineering or scenario preparations whatever your game will consist of if you can pick those processes out in a milestone fashion, I think that's very interesting for a publisher to see. As you say, what what do I get for my money? <laughs> what What is the product? So milestones is a very good thing to measure that, I think. Even though it's basically a salary. Another thing that I saw earlier, there is a GDC talk from 2017 that is called 30 Things I Hate About Your Game Pitch by a person called Brian Upton who has worked with receiving pitches for a long time and he goes into detail about things to avoid during the actual meeting when you pitch a game to a publisher. I'll make sure to link it in the description but that also is something that I think in marketing as well lessons you can take from that because he says stuff like you don't have to describe an inventory system for example or like go into the 
fictional lore politics of your game because that's not the like immediate value that makes your game unique or fun to play or something like that amongst other things in our studio we have talked much about that kind of what should you put in your pitch and what should you present first and what should you present later and i think recently one um, idea we have been tossing around this and i think it's a good idea is that you should first interest the emotional part of the brain to whoever you are presenting they should be emotionally interested in your project what i mean by that is that you shouldn't present the inventory system for instance you should present the fantasy what emotions will your player base experience when playing your game that's very important to establish as quickly as possible so you are you feel for the game before you you start to use your thinky brain and go into budgets and core game loops and stuff if you already have that uh, emotional attachment and go like okay i like this this sounds really cool it's like explosions and it has like a good hook yeah Dave, you who have been on the receiving end, have you heard any game pitches? And if that is the case, what is your take on it? I've heard some, and uh, as already been said here, I think that's a really good approach because obviously it depends on, on, on publisher, but if you can get the publisher hyped about the game itself, I mean, I don't see how that can be a bad thing because for one thing, they will remember the game. And if they remember the game, all the better, right? So, because they see a lot of pitches, if there's something that they can, if they have two equal projects and and they feel for one of them, because whatever reason, that's much better for the developer. So yeah, I think it's a good approach. I think it can smooth out later problems in the project. Like if you already have like a burning desire to see this game come to fruition, then you almost have a need to bend the rules in other matters just because you love this idea of a game. As a developer presenting your game, that is what you want to aim for, to have this champion in your publisher that just wants your game. I think the easiest way to reach that is by emotion. To sell your idea through emotion and let the thinky brain come later like regarding how do we recoup. You don't start with Okay, you're going to recoup by da 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 da. And this is the idea of my game. I, I cannot speak for all publishers, but I, I would surely hope that at least a majority of them works like this. Yeah. That they are genuinely interested in the gaming side of things. Exactly. I think it depends on the platform as well. The more you're going for mobile devices, the more analytical you're going to get with your presentation. And the more key selling points you need to... More, uh, more data you need to present. If you're going for the more premium and, as in your case, physical copies, I consider that the golden standard of premium games. <laughs> then you need to have a really good idea and to present it in a very tasteful manner, so to speak. Yeah, gone are the days where anything boxed could be sold just for being limited. There was a period of time just a few years ago when you put limited on it and you published it uh, on switch or, or playstation 4 or whatever and usually you sold out on of the pre-orders i mean now there's a lot of limited print publishers doing this so so it becomes more about the game themselves and the quality of the games themselves which is a good thing so another thing i'm curious about since we have both representatives here from sweden and japan so rune i'm curious and uh, to the rest of you as well, do you think there's any difference between how publishers act and what they're interested in and uh, how to pitch to them and so on in Japan versus in the West? Well, my publisher is a Westerner, a goddamn Westerner who came here <laughs> to take my job. Now, but he he's from Spain, but he's lived here long enough. So I do think that the sort of Japanese culture have consumed in 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 some ways <laughs> uh, and one thing i learned from just doing modeling here for very long is that i got a lot of jobs not based on 
looking the best but on personal relationships and that's very important in japan so for example i walk into uh castings almost every day i try hard to speak japanese it's far from perfect but damn do they appreciate that over the next guy who looks like he was fucking made by god himself but he's just (laughs) an arrogant prick who can't say a word or he doesn't even try right so personal relationships is worth a lot here and I feel like I have got a lot of jobs just because... And also when I work, coming from a plumber background, as you know, Odo, I think modeling is, is, is it's not really even a job. So I never complain <laughs> when I'm at work. I just do what I need to do. And I always, you know, bow and thank you and do all, all the stuff that I feel like I should do. But some of the people I work with, God damn it, have they never had a real job? Because they're such pricks, some of them. And that's something i know i come across as a prick now but hey that's anyway that's the they won't get hired again from that client so that's one thing i noticed in japan doing that but with my publisher as well like i feel like we have that sort of relationship too like personal relationships are very important so yeah maybe the games doesn't sell well or even for me like yeah let's say well knife boy doesn't sell very well But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to go to the next publisher. Now they're doing less publishing. So that's probably going to be the case. But and even if he and the other way around, like he maybe he would say, well, Red Colon didn't sell well. It did. But let's say he did said it didn't. He would probably still go on and do the next game because we have a personal relationship. So it's it's in a weird way. The money doesn't seem to. Of course, it matters in the end of the day. But it's there is something with the personal relationship and i actually remember capcom making a statement this is maybe two years ago something like that and they did say something along those lines that some of our games doesn't sell as well as as we had hoped or as as they should but i can't remember the statement but it was sort of like that in the end of the day it's not only about the money it's also about the product and the, the the art or the fans that love that particular game that are almost more important than the the money that it makes so I do feel like that's sort of like the case sometimes here. But obviously Japan is becoming, I mean, it's very capitalized, capitalism and all that. But I don't know. I think that would be the only difference that I could tell from my little experience. I second yeah. that, especially when it comes to personal contacts and the loyalty that follows with it. As you say, there are always other examples on what they expect, but... In general, I, I would say so too. And also, if you know the language, all the better. I've heard that Japan is, if you're going to approach the Eastern market, Japan is like the, or maybe Japan and Korea, as a Westerner, the first choice to go to because they are the most similar to the Western audience. And the Chinese are probably the hardest, as I understand it, both in regards to what the player base expects, like, the Chinese might expect to be able to pay to win when the Western audience just doesn't like that approach at all. And I don't know if the Japanese audience leans more toward the West or more to the to the Chinese market. I would imagine it's more to the West in that regard. Like there are no not so many pay to win games coming out of the Japan. But maybe you Rune have more experience in that matter, I don't know. Well, mobile gaming or portable gaming is definitely the biggest thing here because it's just no time to sit and play games. But I think you're right. I mean, look at most Japanese games. I wouldn't say there is any almost pay-to-win sort of thing. They they seem very... They feel like they're very complete products when they're out. It's sort of like they still have that sort of proud made-in-Japan thingy. I'm sure there are games that are horrible, but I don't know. They feel like they're complete games when they're out and they don't have that sort of micro what is called the micro you know when you pay stuff all the time but i yeah i don't know much about the the chinese market but it would make sense that japan and korea is more like what the westerners are like because china is a very sort of shut off country in terms of the internet and you know it, it, it's just a different worldview almost if you're inside or outside china so I would I would say that that probably makes sense in, in some way. But and I can also tell by reading some of the, the news here in Japan when it comes to games. Like 
they tend to Japanese gamers seems to be upset about the same stuff that we get upset about in the West, and that's usually the sort of nickel and diming stuff that a lot of game companies does. So here they seem to be upset about those things as well, which is to your point that this whole pay-to-win thing it doesn't seem to be that popular here. I don't know. As I said, I don't know about China, but if if that's the case, then yeah, it's probably the easiest way to get into the eastern market is through through Japan and uh, Korea probably. And uh, historically speaking, and all that Korea, you know, it's when North and South was divided. South Korea basically become like very influenced by American culture. I mean, if you go there, it's you can see it everywhere, the American culture. So it makes sense what you said. Yeah, I don't think the Asian market is the first place for an indie studio from Sweden or Europe to try to get a market in. Rune, you have a, have another story in that regard, so <laughs> I I, uh, I don't know how true it rings anymore. Yeah, I mean, my game is very Japanesey, and one of the my publisher, what he did when he sort of promoted the game was to sort of make sure that people knew it's some Swede who moved to Japan and made the games. So that I think a lot of people were sort of interested in that because the game, I mean, if you didn't know better, you would think that it is a Japanese developed game. So you're probably right that, uh, and, and in the games, it's not. It's getting. It's getting bigger and bigger in Japan. There is actually like a TV drama right now, on Japanese TV when it's about these indie developers. It's like two two people and they make this game and it becomes big and all that. So you can see that the indie scene is is growing here in Japan. I, I would say it's it's probably quite hard to get your game in here, and also you would have to translate it, of course. So that's another obstacle. Could you elaborate a little bit about the pay-to-win mentality in China? Because I've never heard that that would be something that would be appreciated or even expected in the game. I can't say that I have any first-hand experience, but when we have been to different events and accelerators, like people who help us, small indie devs, to reach out, every time we have had some advice regarding approaching the, the the Asian or Eastern markets, like don't go to China, approach Japan and South Korea, because China, they expect you to, to deliver tools for the players to be able to purchase their success in the game. Like they want to pay for the biggest and baddest weapons at the get-go. I, I can't say I, I know this for a fact, but I've heard it said one, two and three times. I can't speak from self-experience. Interesting. We'll have to dig deeper into that if there's any Chinese publishers who want to to talk to us, I suppose. Dave, do you work anything with China? Nothing, as far as I'm aware. Mostly with Japan when it comes mm-hmm. to the non-Western countries. I don't, I don't say it's wrong, but I think it all relates to that you need to know your market and have a, a good plan to, to reach your goal. And I would say that the Chinese probably know how to reach their goals in an efficient way. There's an, like a very famous Maxim statement that a goal without a plan is just a wish. And I think that holds very true depending on the market you're trying to target. That you, know to, you need to have a plan to reach a goal rather than just you're wishing for something. But it, I think it makes sense again with, with China, just like historically speaking too, it's been a very poor country and now it's very rich or well, China is suffering like any other country, I suppose. But it's also something I noticed living here. So it's very rare to go home to a Japanese person's house, while in Sweden, that's like, I mean, we give f- people fucking tours when we take them home. Well, this is my living room and this is this gold floor is from like, <laughs> you know. So it's like, I don't know, it's like a bragging thing. Well, that's how my wife looked at it. And I was like, we don't brag. It's just like people are really into interior design. So, you know, a cultural thing. But here in Japan, like I've been living here for a decade and I've been to like five homes. But when you walk around in Tokyo, for example, God damn it, do people dress well and like, the latest you know phone or i don't know it's like you sort of show your wealth 
or your status in a different way. And I could definitely imagine that w- that's the same in China. I've never been to mainland China, only Hong Kong, but I could definitely imagine that would be a similar thing in, in, in China that, you know, you're rich now, so you, you pay to win. And I don't know, there's something to it that I, I think probably makes sense. But yeah, it's like you said, the market is different. And, and I think it's combined with the culture too. One thing about Japan, maybe you can verify it. <laughs> I've heard that they are very hierarchical Yeah, in, in Japan. Like you can't, or of course you can, but you're not expected to speak to your boss's boss. That's like, that's frowned upon. Mm. And that could get you in trouble and that can get your boss in trouble. Because you took a, a few steps too far in the ladder in your communication. Is, is that true? Yeah, I mean, it's very much like that. My wife, she's starting her new job tomorrow and she's so nervous because it's... Well, first of all, we had a, a son, so she hasn't worked in ages. And then just today she said like, oh, this is going to be so... Like I have to sort of embrace that Japanese thing when I have to sort of speak to my boss in... I can't even remember what it... Oh, do you know a little bit Japanese, right? The Keigo. It's called Keigo. So you use a different Japanese when you talk to people above you. Yeah, different verbs and conjugate things entirely differently. Yeah, so that's, it's very much like that. And that's... Yeah, I think it's a problem, but b- because it's... Yeah, it's just not good. And I, I know I read this article with Hideo Kojima. He basically said when he started Kojima Productions he said I wanted to be a more western style company what he alluded to there was that he wanted this sort of where everyone can sort of talk and to each other and have ideas and all that stuff whereas here it seems to be a little bit of a hierarchy and that's I talked to indie devs here too and it's literally sometimes like especially in Tokyo where buildings are very small and tight and many floors instead it's literally you run up and down the stairs to pass on messages and stuff like that but that's uh yeah Hideo Kojima said he was kind of against that and I also remember Nintendo they after the success of uh, Breath of the Wild I read an article where they said this time around we let the older programmers and developers step aside and the younger ones in and you know see at the success there right so I think that's something my wife always talk about too that when you have this hierarchy and if you really get into it, it's, you know, you're supposed, you're not supposed to, the people above you are always right, even if they're wrong. And that's a problem. But in the gaming industry, you know, this is, I, I don't want to say that about the Japanese gaming industry, because I mean, look at, I'm playing Elden Ring now. It's just like, from software as a company, they make f- the fucking best games ever. There's so many good Japanese game developers nowadays. Capcom, they use like, you know, they had a rough time during the PlayStation 3 era, but now they're back on it. It's just like, there's so much good stuff from, from Japan again. A part of me hopes that it is because they are losing up on these sort of hierarchy bullshittery within a company. But, you know, I, th- I maybe the gaming industry is a bit different because it is art after all. And I I can't imagine that like a... Uh, a CEO artist, you know, he should be a little bit more open-minded. But if you go to a different companies that does other things, it is very much like that, this sort of strict hierarchy, which is, I think, is very damaging. The, the more administrative your business becomes, the more hierarchical it also leans towards. As you mentioned, the higher up in the building, basically. I think it was a, a rather large gaming studio from Sweden if it was DICE or Massive, it was one of the big devs that wasn't even a Swedish company. It was a, a big developer, like id Software or Ironstorm. I don't remember. But they had just, they didn't know about this organization issue that they have going and just made a fool of themselves. Ah, I see. Because they just talked straight to the person in front of them across the table and that wasn't okay at all you need to like go to your closest boss and <laughs> go the round to to be able to speak to the person just in front of you basically they didn't know that it was 10 years ago maybe so i can imagine things have changed as well well things change here but it's it's very slow <laughs> it brought to my to my mind i was listening to an audiobook 
regarding this matter, the hierarchical way that different businesses conduct themselves. I think it is uh, the more pressure that's on the person doing the work, the more afraid people below him are to approach that person and give feedback or ideas. Very descriptive scenario that I heard about was the, the medical industry. Like a doctor is having to intubate a patient and he's having very much difficulties doing so. All the people around him are afraid to give advice and uh, point to the seriousness of the matter while he's at work because someone's life is at stake. And just the medical industry is very, it's very bad at this basically. And uh, it's, uh, it's well known about the problems that they have, like a very closed culture and uh, a very closed linear way of communicating. And in this scenario, the patient almost died because the nurse who witnessed the, the, the troubles the doctor were having and the advice she knew about the patient, like, okay, you need to tilt the neck in this way and have the smaller incubator or whatever, that would make a better fit. That is a very big problem in the medical industry. Also, the problem with when you're into something and you're really concentrated on your work, the time can fly and you're, you don't understand where the time went when you're doing the work um, until you look at the clock and it's too late. Okay, I worked on this patient for 45 minutes. How is this possible? I thought it was only like two minutes that I had a problem, but it was 45 minutes and they had a problem getting oxygen to the brain for 45 minutes. And the nurse just noticed this few minutes into the procedure they're okay we need to do something really quick and they didn't have the stomach or the courage to speak up to the doctor who was performing the the procedure yeah that's definitely the problem with those strict hierarchies i mean having someone someone lose face would potentially harm your your future careers in the company as mm -hmm. well because this is your mm -hmm. superior that you're addressing and depending on how this person functions as a human being. Yeah, it's delicate. It's just delicate. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, the flight industry is very well prepared for these kind of scenarios. And they have like a checklist for everyone to follow when a problem occurs. And they are, I think they have a, like an acronym to follow when these situations appears or, or manifest themselves that they follow. And that's the black box also involved like you're very open and you're always encouraged to better the industry and that's not the case in the medical field i think it's horrible <laughs> the way the hierarchy works and i think that this is a very tangent so i think the gaming industry should learn from mostly from the flight industry that be very open and use direct communication is always good for the project i think Nice to hear about the Nintendo Breath of the Wild approach. That was very good to hear. I'm gonna see if I can find that article because I remember reading that and also around the same time I read the one about Kojima-san who wanted to make a more westernish studio. And this was also... I mean, I remember also PlayStation 3 era. Like, the Japanese companies really sucked that generation. They did not keep up. And I, as someone who's been living here now and sort of just looking at like Japanese politics, it's just, wow, they are so out there, these old men. They have no clue. And my wife just ranted about that yesterday, trying to put our son into a kindergarten, man. It's just a wreck. And uh, the, the president recently said, like, well, women should have a parental leave, but they should study or do something while they're home with kids. Like, he obviously have no clue how much work it is just to have a fucking newborn. So it really is like that. And you see that with the politicians. But I, I, I think that was a problem in the gaming industry. And I, it's just a hunch. But I really feel like that was a problem and they realized it. And now it's sort of moving in a different direction. And I, I hope I'm right with this hunch. Because based on the, the games that Japanese game companies have done for the last couple of years, I, I would say that's, it, it, at least it looks true that, something changed and it's just they're killing it now i think uh, a lot of japanese games are just so good right now 
and I hope it has something to do with it that they just changed the, the work culture a little bit. Interesting. I think that's a very good sign-off to the episode. Is there any last comments you want to give before we close the doors to this episode? I've got to ask Dave, how many of the physical games you guys released do you own? All of them up to a certain point because I haven't been sent them yet. So usually everyone gets the games before I do the okay. physical copies that is. So, but, but yes, up to a certain point, I think three years or something, I, I think that for the first year I bought everything and then uh, I got every edition. Uh, one nice. to keep sealed and one to open up. But now it's not like that anymore. Now I just, you know, have a copy for personal use and it's sent out after everyone else has been sent theirs. Okay, cool. Very nice. So do you guys want to plug anything, a website or Twitter account or where our listeners could follow you before we end the episode? So the company is called Strictly Limited Games. You find it at strictlylimitedgames.com. So there you may also check out all of the kind of games that gets released and and what's in stock and, and what is still on pre-order. Yeah, I was watching it while we were chatting. It's some really cool games you guys are publishing. And the limited editions looks really nice. And so a lot of Japanese games too, which is really cool. Lots of awesome indie devs from Japan, as we talked about. So yeah, go in there and pre-order everything. Perfect, thank you. And you're most welcome back if you want to give a broader introduction of Strictly Limited Games and what you do. That would be interesting as well. It's something like uh, physical editions is something that's not that common these days. So that would be really interesting to hear. That would be my honor. Perfect. Let's set something up for the future then. Where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Strictly Dave. Perfect. And we'll make sure to link that. Woohoo! Daniel, uh, do you have anywhere that you want to send uh, our listeners? Sure, Twitter is a good place. We're not very active, but we're hoping to be in the future. So that's the fine arc at Twitter, also the Game Hub. Yeah, exactly. As you said, the Game Hub Umeo Discord channel is also where you find all four of us if you want to have a chat or discuss the podcast or anything else related to games or game development. Yeah, join the community. All right, everyone, so thank you so much for listening to this episode and uh, hope to see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.